Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. And welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Here I am. I am Cindy House. I host this podcast, and I very much appreciate you checking out today's episode, which is with the great John Hyatt. John Hyatt's latest is a collaboration with bluegrass musician Jerry Douglas, with Jerry as producer and his band as backup for Hyatt. John's digging into some serious past memories for these songs, which include a song about his older brother, Michael. Michael died by suicide when John was only nine, and it's only until now where he's chosen to write about the experience in his music in the song Light of the Burning Sun. Jerry knew that the material was very serious and approached it very lovingly with John and the band. On the pod, John expands on his grief and giving himself the time and space to mourn. We also talk about the importance of radio in John's young life. He would listen to WLAC Radio from Nashville as a kid around 11 years old. There was a show on Sunday night where they'd have a gospel show and they'd go into a different black church every week and just broadcast the service. John has said, those gospel shows used to scare the shit out of me. That opened his world to a completely different way to relate to music in terms of faith. John picked up the guitar at 11 as well to cope with the trauma involved in being an overweight child. This was especially hard because he was a bigger kid at a time when it was rare for a child to be heavier. He discusses how music and surprisingly how drugs and alcohol helped him overcome his weight issue, which then of course the drugs and alcohol led to new problems in his adult years requiring him to overcome that addiction and live a sober life. John talks about his kids, which includes the musician Lily Hyatt, the coolest. Lily said in an interview once, I was crying over the fact that my career seems stalled and I wasn't the flavor of the month. And dad said, Lily, we will never be hip. We're just not those people. John's been a steadfast songwriter since the 70s, who's written many well-loved songs, including my personal favorites, Have a Little Faith in Me and Cry Love, and of course, Thing Called Love, which was covered by Bonnie Raitt very popularly. The writing on his latest album spans several decades and confronts some of his most vulnerable feelings. To be able to talk to John Hyatt about this project in particular was a sincere privilege, and I hope you enjoy. We'll take a listen to a song from John's new album. The song is... The music is hot, and then we'll get to our conversation with John Hyatt on Basic Folk. As kids melt into the sky, you're making your moves, trying just to stay alive. And the music is hot, 
WSM on your transistor radio. A song about dreams, you can hear the whistle blow. Waylon walks the line, Merle's mama tries to tell him so. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, John. This is so exciting um, to have you on the podcast. So thanks again. Thanks for having me. I've read that you're a pretty private person. You don't like talking about like certain details. So I've tried to like keep that in mind. Oh, uh, you know, my life's an open book. So okay. you ask me anything. <laughs> All right, great. And uh, I am going to ask you about your feelings. So um, <sighs> hope you're ready. I'm for sorry, that. I can't go there. <laughs> um, okay, it's too scary. I know. I agree. <laughs> I agree. So. But um, I'm hoping that we'll all learn a thing or two by the end of this. So on the new record, Leftover Feelings, the song "The Music Is Hot" has a woman in the South listening to radio back in the day. And I want to hear about the influence and impact of listening to the radio for you, especially like growing up in a family of seven children. It sounded like the radio was like a real solace for you. So how and, and like I'm wondering, like how the connection to radio has changed over the course of your life as like a young kid who just loved the radio. And then as somebody whose music was then played on the radio. What a terrific uh, uh, question. I um yeah, uh, radio was, that's how we heard music, uh, you know, f- uh, folks from my era. And I, I grew up listening to um, just the local, uh, you know, I guess now you'd call it the Top 40 station. But in those days, Top 40 would be, you know, you'd hear Otis Redding and then you'd hear the Rolling Stones and then you'd hear, you know, the McCoys, Hang On Sloopy, and then maybe, a you know, uh one of the more bluesy kind of uh, rhythm and blues guys and you know it was all mixed up so it was kind of the golden the golden era in a way and uh for a kid from the midwest i mean you know to hear to hear marvin gay uh and tammy terrell singing ain't no mountain high enough you know or it just was uh you know it's like they were speaking uh, to my heart mm. so yeah it had a tremendous uh, uh impact on me and i was trying to kind of Mirror that, uh, writing writing that song. The music music is hot, uh, you know. Setting this uh, this woman, uh, a sing, single mother, uh, raising kids, just trying to get by, and 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 her inspiration being uh, the great uh, WSM radio station, which uh, is the heavyweight country music station of the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how about as like you grew older? your relationship to radio, how might that have changed like as you became someone who's trying to get your music on the radio? Well, even uh, when I started writing songs when I was 11, I was trying to emulate what I was hearing. I'll never forget, for example, I think I was 65, I would have been four, uh, 13 or four, 13, hearing like a Rolling Stone on the radio for the first time. Mm. Uh, and uh, I was sitting in the car. My mother had parked the car and ran into a drugstore to pick up a prescription. And uh, I was so profoundly uh, affected by hearing the song that I, my thought was that when she came back out, she wouldn't recognize me. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so that's how transformed I felt right. uh, by that song. But, but anyway, and then later to, uh, I mean, I, I, I uh, I'll jump up a, a few years when I was uh, my first record on um, Epic Records, which came out in 1974. So, what was I 22? Uh, they by that time we had album rock you know mm-hmm. uh and they would play whole whole albums on the, the local fm station and there was one here in nashville i'd moved to nashville when i was 18 and um they they were going to play my whole record it, they had a program that featured local artists and so i ran out and jumped into my volkswagen van and turned the radio on and uh, listened to my it was the first time I'd ever heard myself on the radio oh that's exciting it was very exciting it was, very, it was profound one more question about um the radio I read that you used to listen to WLAC from Nashville when you were in Indianapolis you were yes around 11 and there was a show on Sunday night where they would basically broadcast a gospel service from a different black church every week. And you had this amazing quote about it. You said those gospel shows used to scare the shit out of me. <laughs> um, Indeed. Yeah. I mean, I was I was singing in our choir at church, uh, in the boys' choir, but we were singing a Catholic mass. It was still in Latin. So these people are carrying on and telling you what it was all about. And we were singing Kyrie Lay song, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, which I didn't even understand. Now, I was, I was moved by it profoundly. I loved singing in the choir. How did that music impact, like, that you would hear on the radio from those gospel services? How did that impact or open up your relationship to religion or to faith? Well, I think it was kind of... Um, later when I found that, mm. although I'm sure, you know, I had faith in the music mm. and, uh, that's, that's, that's God enough, mm. I think. Uh, so, so yeah, I had faith in, uh, this power greater than myself music mm-hmm. and its ability to mu- move people. And I remember listening to, uh, the, the show that I listened to on Sunday night was the uh, Hossman Allen, um, who was, uh, actually a white guy. And he was always, uh, he was, uh, the, the, the various churches that would have him for the first time, they were always surprised to find out that he was a white guy because he sounded, he sounded like a black guy. Mm. And uh, I got to meet him actually later in, later in my life, a uh, wonder, wonderful man. But yeah, he, he had a huge influence on me. Mm. So you are from Indianapolis and grew up kind of being obsessed with racing in the Indy 500 um, it sounds like the drivers were as much as like rock stars as actual rock stars, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. And the first track on the new album, Long Black Electric Cadillac, dedicated to an electric car. So uh, I want to know, like, you know, like Neil Young loves those like real big honkers that are gas guzzlers. So he's been known to talk about trying to make those cars more green. But he he's made one. He made one. His uh, he took a Lincoln and electrified it. He calls it the Link Volt. Oh my God! That yeah, sounds great. <laughs> so it is doable, <laughs> America. <laughs> we can make a long black electric Cadillac. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, that song is great. And oh, how has your you. love for cars evolved over the years? And like, where's your malle- malleability landed when it comes to like new environmentally friendly cars? 
Well, assuming the the math works, in other words, the power it takes to to charge these things, uh, if we can do that in Greenway, uh, I'm all for it. I love uh, love the idea of electric cars, Mm -hmm. and I'm hoping that – that it's something that's that's going to uh, work out for the world. I think it's you know, as I say, I don't know the particulars of what it takes to charge these things. What kind of what what kind of power it takes to do that? Where do you get that power from? So on and so forth. So yeah, there's things I don't. I'm not that sophisticated, but but I have ridden in one, and they're amazing. It's seamless acceleration. Hmm. There's no gear shifting. It's it just goes. And you have the same amount of torque at 90 miles an hour as you did at 10. It's just incredible. Wow. I'm all for it. Long black electric Cadillac. I'll be at the dealership tomorrow as soon as they make it. Also like a great opening for a John Hyatt and Jerry Douglas collaboration where it just starts off with his insane dobro playing. Like Jerry Douglas's dobro playing to me sounds like a unicorn riding on a rainbow. <laughs> that's great i'm gonna tell him that you should that's perfect yeah he takes it he takes its places that's for sure how did it feel to like i know you love working with like musicians who use fretless instruments like jerry and uh rodney crowell but how did it feel like how does it feel to like experience that kind of like out of this world sound alongside your songs uh, levitating. Yeah. It was like walking on clouds, you know, we had so much fun making the record. We did it in four days and, um, you know, just, you know, uh, the, the arrangements were off the floor. It was all live. There were just a couple of overdubs after the fact. I remember, uh, I know, uh, uh, Christian Stettelmeyer and, um, uh, Daniel, uh, the bass player, uh, did a little string quartet on the song Buddy Boy. That was an overdub, but but the performances were all of a piece and and recorded live in the in the RCA Studio B. You actually have like a knack for banging out albums in a very short amount of time. Like you said, this record recorded in four days. And it's interesting to think about your time at Tree Music Publishing Company in Nashville when you were 18 years old writing songs. Um, which you wrote and recorded 250 of them. And how did that like early experience of recording all those songs so quickly affect the way you work in a studio? I think it was a wonderful experience. You know, they had a little tiny, it was a four-track studio. And a, a young guy named Eddie, I can't think of his last name, uh, ran it, engineered it. And uh, I'd be in there as much time as I could get. I'd be in there. And it was basically just a vocal booth and then a little tiny room where you could set up a little two-piece drum kit, maybe. Uh, But I'd be stuck in that vocal booth just making guitar vocal demos as quick as I could write them. And I think it it gave me um, the opportunity to be at ease, you know, in a Mm. a recording uh, setting. And also to get used to hearing myself sing because it's an awful thing to hear yourself sing when when you first do it. Rodney Crowell came by the studio the other the other day when we were uh, doing some some uh, filming uh, and he he walked up to me and he said, have you gotten over hating your own singing voice yet? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I've made my peace with it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> 
Yeah. So yeah, he, he, he I thought that was funny because it is it is odd, uh, you know, to hear yourself. wanted to ask you about the song Light of the Burning Sun, which is um, about your brother Michael's death. You said, uh, which he died by suicide when you were nine years old, and you said the thing about a traumatic event in one's life is that it sort of pats, packs its bags and moves into your psyche, um, and so it can take some time to get to get over that and to, to make peace with that. Can you talk about giving yourself the time to make peace there and what it was like to face the grief of Michael, like before you wrote that song and afterwards? Well, it's, uh, he, 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 uh, took his own life when I was 11 and I'm, uh, there were seven of us. He was the oldest, uh, and my mother's, uh, you know, firstborn, uh, she adored him, of course. Uh, he worked for my father, uh, unhappily as it turned out but but uh you know it's as you spend your life learning how to live so i've spent my life learning how to live with uh, a tragedy like that that happened mm-hmm. that happened uh you know in my family and you talk about the bags sort of they, they sort of get packed and 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 come along with you and it's kind of uh, what you have to do is sort of uh, start unpacking the bags as you go along and as you're ready and willing and however much help you can get or need uh, and find, you know, take a look at the, the clothes that are in there, mm. <laughs> and, you know, you know, what fits, what's you put, put, you can wear it and what's, you know, you, grief is, you know, it has its own um, schedule. Mm. So, it can take forever, and 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 it's okay. But it was, it was great to finally write write a song about it, mm. uh, and it's a very factual, just just an accounting of what took place, uh, and it kind of came out all in a piece, as I recall. I wrote it, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago, and um, so I was kind of re- there was a great deal of relief to just 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 getting it down and. And, and and also I, I like the idea that that I can connect now, possibly because of the song, uh, with other people who've had this experience. And yeah. so you know, it's it's another way of connecting with with humanity. So you got to deal with the grief and the hard stuff as well as the joy and the happiness. Definitely, and I think that that's like one great service that artists and songwriters give to us is that you are able to put your feelings out there in a way that makes us feel less alone. So I'm sure that's much appreciated. I think most of us feel that it's, that's the special link that we, that we are so grateful to. Cause I, you know, I'm like a lot of, uh, you know, typical singer songwriter. you know, connecting with people is not my long suit (laughs) in terms of, you know, I'm not particularly outgoing or anything. I'm kind of a shy guy. So it's kind of like, uh, oh, who was the character that uh, imagined doing all these great things back in the 50s? I can't remember his name, but it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, uh, most, a lot of my world is imaginary mm. and uh, to be able to, so this writing songs allows me to, to connect with, 
the big we. I have one yeah. more question about that song, and then I want to ask you more questions about your songwriting. Um, so right. Jerry approached that song very lovingly with you and his band, and you and Jerry have known each other in a professional capacity, and this is the first time you're working together. But I imagine that there were times like this where your relationship grew like exponentially. Um, so what did his approach mean to you, especially on that song, and how do you think that experience deepened your friendship? Well, you know, I think you you hit it on the head. We've we've known each other professionally, but we're just now uh, actually becoming friends through working on this record. And I was so touched with 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 uh, the kindness, uh, the way he handled the song, and and urged me to record it. I didn't even want to record it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a little leery. I said, "Jerry, geez, this is so dark." You know, and he said, "No, people need to hear this." You know, he was encouraging. Um, so it was a, a, a very loving, uh, kind thing for for a, for for a friend to do. That's what it felt like mm. to me. And when you are writing your lyrics, I have heard that you write the melody first, and the lyrics kind of like reveal themselves to you while you're messing around with the music. Like you said, you've just got to jump inside and take the ride. Um, so, given that, what has that taught you about processing your feelings and experiences through songwriting? Well, that's that's the well, you know. You you go to when when it's when you've got a when I've got a little uh, chord pattern and a melody maybe that I'm goofing around with and a, a rhythm gag. You know, it's a lot about the rhythm too, that kind of dictates. And then it's like you might even you might even in in singing nonsense. Oftentimes, I'll sing a line that makes sense, and I'll go, oh. That's what I'm going to write. That's what this song is about, you know. Um, so that that can happen. But, but um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Just thinking about how we, how uh, the songs, uh, the lyric uh, allows me to connect with. It's, it's, it's not just my feelings. It's, a, it's a, you know. It can be something I've read or a story that was told uh, that I'm retelling. You know, stories is is what we have as human mm-hmm. beings. You know, it was always thus. I mean, we've told stories since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. So it's just one, it's the same story probably. We just retell it. Yeah. You know? The fish gets bigger <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or smaller, but, you know. One of my favorite songs of all time is Cry Love. Um, in the lyrics, it sounds like, so I was listening it to listening to it today and after like reading all of your history correct me if I'm wrong it sounds like you are taking responsibility for your part in something and pointing out your shortcoming shortcomings does that sound right Uh sure yeah. I I th- yeah I mean it's the character is a is a woman who's been hurt you know uh and and I've I've hurt people in my life for sure didn't want to right so facing that kind of realization I think takes a lot of humbleness and humility and just facing shame you know like what was the process like of understanding your faults in situations and what was it like to express that so publicly in songs 
<laughs> well, the for me, the, the only way I've I can I've ever been able to make peace with all that stuff is as I is by writing a song about it. Uh, you know, it's like. Uh, it's like my version of journaling, I guess, if you will. I, I, you know, I know that helps a lot of people just to mm -hmm. just to write stuff down, you know, uh, to put pen to paper, or or in my case, f fingers to my iPad nowadays because I can't <laughs> read my own writing. But uh, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it's it's how I kind of uh, ex it's how I figure out the emotional uh, landscape of of a of a given period of my life or mm. events or what other people I know are going through or, you know, yeah. I just love that. I mean, I just love it when people are, I'm reading um, Brandy Carlisle's book right now, um, ah. which I'd recommend. And I'm reading the beginning of it. And I'm like, she sounds really difficult, really tough. But I'm also thinking that like, I really like that in songs when people are like, Hey, I messed up and I was a jerk. And I admit it. And, yeah. and, you know, as as the book is going on, I'm like liking her even more and more and more. Um, but I love it when somebody can do that in like a three minute song. You know, I've been married to my wife for 35 years as of uh, Jan uh, June 6th this weekend. Oh, congrats. And uh, if we can't admit, <laughs> if you can't admit, <laughs> if you can't cop to your stuff, uh, marriage isn't going to last very mm. long. So, so I've learned, I've got a good teacher. Okay. So here is where we learned that we lived parallel lives for a little while. Um, so you were an overweight child, as was I, yes. an overweight yes. Catholic child, as was I. Uh Oh, yep. Um, yeah. so I really relate to that experience and you learned to play guitar when you were 11 because you were a fat, you said, you call yourself a fat kid. I did, which is not, I know it's not uh, well, it's, very I, sensitive. It's like. That's uh, what I felt like. Totally. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like um, trying to make a joke out of it so you don't really have to talk about it. But, That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, you wanted to have friends, you wanted to be loved, and that was the thing that you reach for. So I was actually talking to my friend and trainer who says they were saying that children who experience the trauma of being overweight tend to be healthier adults, which I also totally relate to. Um, but I'm wondering, like, how does that experience of like being an overweight child follow you around? And how does that resonate with you? Like, how does health resonate with you these days? Um, that's a lot. Uh, I was overweight. I was, I weighed, by the time I was 15, I weighed 320 pounds. Mm. Uh, and uh, food was just the, the way I consoled myself and stopped all the crazy stuff that was happening around me from, from happening. Uh, I literally was trying to get big enough so that nobody could come in and hurt me anymore. Mm. So that was what was going on. And thank goodness I found music uh, when I was 11. Also, uh, thank goodness I found alcohol when I was 11. And the combination uh, really, really saved my life. I mean, um, I was, I'm grateful for both of them. I, I, I'm happy I, uh, that I don't have to drink and take drugs anymore. 
uh, but but it got it that period. It, it was important because it fueled. Uh, uh, it was a way for me to get out of that situation, um, and I could drink and uh, and uh, uh, you know feel better about myself. Mm. So and and the music, of course, was very soothing. Uh, later, of course, alcohol turned on me. I got sober when I was thirty-two, so uh, it took a minute. But um, but yeah, uh, I think you build. Em- I think it's uh, previous formerly overweight people. I think it uh, builds empathy in a person. You know, I understand. And when I was overweight, we're talking the early '60s. It was a little more unusual to be overweight in America mm-hmm. back back then. It's not quite as unusual uh, today. Growing up in the 80s, it was hard to find, like, clothing and stuff that... Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I went to Catholic school, and as you, we didn't have... Uh, the boys didn't have uniforms, but they, but they all dressed the same. And, of course, I couldn't buy the same clothes mm. that they were buying. Uh, and people couldn't, for other reasons, they couldn't afford them and so on and so forth. But, I, yeah, I was at the big and tall shop and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Way, when it, exactly where I didn't want to be. Right, you know. right. But uh, there I was. So, But you learn, you know, I think you, I think it, I think you learn, it's a life lesson, you know. And, and as far as, you know, I've had body image issues my whole life. It's just, but in the last couple of years, I've, I've, gotten pretty easy going about it all you know and i may have been maintained my weight essentially for the last 25 years so Mm. um it's no small feat no and you have to work at it every day you know i have to have a you know i'm good I'm, i'm not good when i'm when i'm bored or left to my own devices i have to have a you know a a a, a, a kind of uh, things that happen to every day in a certain, in a little bit of an order hmm. uh, to, so that I can, you know, I feel comfortable that way. Your daughter, Lily Hyatt is a really successful and very cool musician. And you were a single dad with Lily for, for a short amount of time. But I was wondering if you could talk more about your connection with her, you know, keeping that in mind when she was growing up. Well, she she lost her mother, her birth mother, to suicide in 1985. Uh, she was had just turned uh, one year old, and uh, I subsequently moved she and I to Nashville, and um, I was within the f- first year of being here. I met my uh, my wife. Uh, last, I was the last person on earth looking for anything like a relationship. <laughs> uh, much less getting married again, but uh, it was meant to be. So, and my wife had an eight-year-old boy, my stepson Rob, and uh, Lily was two at that time. And and uh, we were married in 1986. And it was as if, you know, uh, it was as if uh, we were kind of guided, uh, almost like uh, you know somebody was saying, you know, you guys apart, I don't know if you could be able to pull this off, <laughs> raising raising your kid your kids apart but mm-hmm. i think if we put you together you got a crack at it <laughs> so that that's what happened and two years later we had uh, georgia ray and these kids are amazing uh, these uh they're the finest people i know and and they love each other you know that's that doesn't always happen in a blended family i'm mm-hmm. told so so we were delighted at that and every time we see them we're just 
They're just delightful people. We're very, very proud of them. Yeah, I read this really great interview that you and Lily did together, and she said, I was crying over the fact my career seems stalled and I wasn't the flavor of the month. And my dad said, Lily, we will never be hip. We're just not those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What did you mean? Yeah, we're that? not. We're yeah. not, and it's just fine. Yeah. <laughs> when did you, like, reckon with that, and how did it feel to draw that conclusion? Oh, gosh. Um, I I guess it took time. I, I you know... I'm hopeful that I, that I can say sometime in the last 20 years, the penny dropped and I just, I just kind of, you know, it's okay. I get, I get what I do. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm very happy to do it and I feel grateful to be able to do it. And, and that's what it's about, you know, at the end of the day. So, mm. yeah. talking about empathy a little bit earlier and I really wanted to ask you this question about being a man in the music industry who's made some very masculine sounding music over the years but you've also made some more sensitive sounding music and if one zooms into your songs there's a softness there even in the rough songs and you've written from the perspective of women and have had women transform your songs to a female point of view, like Bonnie Raitt, most notably, thing called love. So how has this experience of expressing sensitivity impacted your maleness and your ability to empathize with non-males? Well, I, you know, I was the last boy at home with three sisters and my mother. And at the time, I hated it. But now and for many years i'm forever grateful uh i learned so much about uh the female perspective and 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 my own feminine qualities if you will mm -hmm. i think we we have both you know and so um so yeah i had to what i didn't have was uh my father died when i was 13 so i really had no guide for how to become a man. Uh, so that took me a long time uh, because I didn't have, I mean, I, I refer to this often, simple things like I used to watch uh, the little boys at the sporting events and they'd be in, in the, in the uh, uh, restrooms in between, uh, you know, the action with their dad and the dad would be showing them how to use a urinal, you know. And I, I, I would look at that and go, nobody ever taught me that. <laughs> I mean, just basic, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, functional uh, maleness. I, I didn't have a guide. And, and my father died when I was 13, which is when boys need a father the most. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, you're, you've hit puberty. You don't have a clue. Raging hormones. You're crazy as a bed bug. Yeah. And you just need somebody to help you, uh, you know, uh, navigate. And, and Pop wasn't there. But I had, I had sisters. And they loved me. 
And, uh, you know, the summer I spent in the, my bedroom listening to uh, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, you know, and didn't come out. They, they put up with that, and they, and they humored me, and they were warm at the times I did come out for a meal or whatever. Yeah. You know, they didn't, act, they didn't act like, what are you, crazy? You know, <laughs> so just things like that. So I developed uh, a great deal of respect for, for the female point of view, points of view and empathy and, um, and also just uh, the give and take of, of male-female uh, relationships. But as I say, it took me a long time to grow up mm-hmm. in terms of a, becoming a man. And I'm not even sure I know what that is, but but I I'm still growing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's good. Your music has ridden the scope of many genres over your career, with a few albums, um, n- notably Crossing Muddy Waters, and now with Leftover Feelings, um, a few albums being seeped in folk and bluegrass influence. How have you found that particular sound of bluegrass and folk helpful in expression of the song's meanings? I, I love I love the, the that 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 setting. I love uh, fiddles and uh, Christian Settlemeyer, who played on this record, is just uh, so amazing. Mm. He can, of course, he's steeped in the bluegrass tradition, but he can play anything. Uh, just unbelievable. And and uh, Daniel Kimbrough, the bass, the upright bass player, same thing. He can he can bow his double bass uh like a symphony guy you know Mm. i mean and yet he'll boom 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 uh with the best of them on any bluegrass tune you want to call out so and jerry of course just uh, just unbelievable uh you know virtuoso but they all have soul they all know how to play songs uh but yeah, I you know I remember hearing Tut Taylor when I came here in 1970. The uh, who was he was kind of the king dobro player in Nashville at that time. Uh, I guess after Josh Graves, uh, and um, I remember hearing him at the old time picking parlor and just being amazed at the sound of that instrument and how it speaks and sings and just just wonderful. Hmm. The new album has no drums. That is correct. That is correct. The drummer blew up. <laughs> drummer blew I, up. I hear Jerry wanted the drummer. <laughs> Jerry wanted the drummer, and I said, "Why don't we do it without the drums?" Uh, I don't know why. I just felt like you know, I, I, I'd made that that record uh, you mentioned, "Crossing Muddy Waters," which was bluegrass-ish. You know, had the similar kind of flavor acoustic instruments uh and no drums on that although we mic'd uh davy farragher the bass player's foot he stomped mm. he stomped uh so we had that but uh i just i just felt like we could really get get something and make the rhythm ourselves you know but, but and, and these guys are so i mean i'm a rhythm guitar player and i i fancy myself you know i can lay i can as as uh, they used to say back in the day scrum a cushion what? I can scrum a scrum cushion. Scrum a cushion. Yeah, that's a that's a good rhythm jag on okay. a on a record R and B record from the sixties. You know, if you started noodle and the producer would come on and go, uh, uh, uh just scrum a cushion. <laughs> oh my god! All right, I'm going to use that in in yeah. real life. Yeah, scrum a cushion. Yeah, don't be all don't be all up in the Welsh corgi up standing on the hind legs. <laughs> just scr- just scrum a cushion. <laughs> so, how did it feel to establish? The beat without the without the drums sounds Just like it was wonderful. pretty good. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you know, I'll 
all all of us are all stringed instrument players are frustrated drummers probably anyway you know <laughs> and I, I mean i know i started out beating on pots and pans before i picked up the guitar you know drove my mother crazy you know it's funny to think that you were a loner back in the 70s when you first got to nashville um, but since then, you've you've tended to thrive on collaborations with, you know, with Jerry uh, on this record, working with Rodney Crowell and Nick Lowe. Um, how have you noticed these types of collaborations changing you um, and how has it impacted your relationship to performing? Well, every record is a new adventure and getting together a group of players is, you know, the next big exciting moment to us to me anyway a singer songwriter uh, the thought of oh what 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 would this group of musicians make of these songs you know and uh, and so then to take that out and play it is is sort of like you know the cherry on top of the mm. whole deal this is what we why we do it you know so we can go out and and perform play play the songs make the connection you know you have to be like so confident in your songwriting abilities to like throw it at all sorts of different collaborators. Well, I've been really lucky that you know I've been able to play with some great players, and that's just I I, I'm all, I most of the time I'm scratching my head going, how did I land in this tall of cotton? You know, so probably from I'm scrumming kinda, the cushion. Kind of scrumming the cushion, I guess. Um, the song Little Good Night is the oldest song on the record about your youngest baby, who is now 33 years old. 33. Georgia yeah, Ray. She, she, had, she was one of those what they called colicky babies. And, uh, yeah, we nearly lost our minds. Mm. And, uh, but finally, at about three months, she started sleeping. <laughs> it's like a switch went on. <laughs> or off, as the case may be. So what was it like yeah. to revisit that song about parenting such a young baby? Uh, it, it was wonderful. You know, I'd made a demo of it that many years ago, but I never put it on a record. And uh, I, put, I, I sent it to Jerry as a group of songs to consider, and he, 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 thought, he said, we got to record that. So he said every parent's been through that, for goodness sake. Yeah, it sounds With like... With at least one child. It sounds like Jerry, like you gave him... How many songs did you give him to... To check out, I think about 15, 14. Were you surprised at the songs he selected? Well, uh, Light of the Burning Sun surprised me. Mm. Yeah. And also, you recorded at RCA Studio B, which, if people are unfamiliar, it's this ultra historic space. Elvis Presley recorded hundreds of songs here. There are tours that go through this studio, but luckily, you guys didn't have to deal with that because of the pandemic well, I guess not luckily because of the pandemic but anyways but it was our our good fortune yes yeah. um yes and you said it's just like this big old warm smile that wraps around you you can just hear all that music coming out of the walls so what was the role Indeed. of Studio B in the album and how did the space help shape the record well it has its own sound you know and if you hit it right if you set the mics up right uh, it, it, it's like having a, it's like a sixth musician, you know, playing along with you. And that's the way recording studios were built back in those days. They, they were, they weren't meant to be, uh, uh, acoustically neutral, uh, rooms that added no color. They were meant to add color. 
the idea was to, uh, if you set the mics up right and, and dealt with the eccentricities of the room, acoustically speaking, that you'd wind up with something larger than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it would come out a little bigger, a little better. And this was before all the digital stuff that you can do uh, in a computer now, which is all amazing. But, um, but this is uh, the, old, the old way. Where you let the you let the room give give what it has to give. Nice. Okay, uh, you have had songs and references to dogs in your music. Um, what has the companionship of a dog meant to you? And can you talk about your favorite dog? Oh, I don't play favorites with dogs. Much <laughs> like I don't play favorites with my kids. Uh, I've loved them all, and they've all brought different you know stuff to the table. <laughs> So we've had dogs. Uh, I mean, I've had dogs. I had dogs when I was a kid. I grew up with a couple of Weimaraners, and then uh, in my marriage to uh, to my wife, we've had. We usually we lived on a farm for twenty five years, so we'd have four or five dogs at a time. We've had Great Danes. We've had uh, rescues of all stripe and color and look and shape and size. We've had Jack Russell Terriers. We've had. Um, We've had pities. We've had all kind of dogs. All dogs go to heaven. <laughs> we currently have a, 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 he's across a West Highland Terrier and a Maltese. He's all of 11 pounds, oh. and we named him, named him Spanky. <laughs> and he was a rescue from a breeding operation that went south. Mm. Uh, he spent his first 16 months in a cage. Um, so he's been traumatized and we we told him well you fit right in to this family so come on <laughs> and he's just the sweetest little dog my wife and i look at each other and go if you'd have told us at any time in our married lives that we'd wind up with a wee white dog we'd have laughed yeah but that that's what we have and he's a, he's a sweetheart yeah all right john uh can we do one more thing before we let you go yes okay this is called the lightning round yeah. Here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Um, it's a song I wrote. I as soon as I had two chords, I wrote a song. It's called Beth Ann, oh. and it went. It was about a sixth. We were in fifth grade. She was in sixth. She had developed a little more than the other gal, so we were all paying attention to her. And uh, it went Beth Ann. Ooh, she's a woman. <laughs> that was wow. my first song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How do you take your coffee? Uh, a little cream and a little uh, a little uh, monk fruit sweetener. Who is your first celebrity crush? Oh, wow. Uh, Gidget. Who's the nicest musician you've ever met? Well, Nick Lowe's a sweetie. Mm, he is so nice. I yeah, met him yeah. one time. He was yeah, great. Yeah. Good choice. What was your first concert? Uh, the Yardbirds. What? At a 100-seat club in Indianapolis, Indiana. Wow. And I can't, it was either Jeff Beck or Jimmy Page on guitar. I think it was Jeff Beck. And, uh, yeah, over, under, sideways, down. What was the last book you read, or what is the book you're reading right now? I'm reading a book that's not in front of me, but it's a, it's a mystery uh, by a Scottish writer, and and it's just marvelous. And I can't. I wish my poor brain. It's <laughs> it's great though. Uh, Beatles or the Rolling Stones? 
All Rolling Stones and Beatles. Uh, yeah, how can you choose? That's, I mean, good point. Um, would you rather be able to fly or would you rather be invisible? Uh, I'll take a, I'd love to fly. That'd be spectacular. Okay, this is the last question. Okay. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? We were up on a mountain in Switzerland. Uh, did a show, and I can't remember the name of the place, but it was spectacular. The most beautiful views uh, I'd ever seen. Yeah, so, so somewhere in the Swiss mountains in the summer. Mm. In the summer. Good. Yeah, it was beautiful. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time and answering all my questions about my your feelings. My pleasure. It was fascinating and wonderful. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate you. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Basic Folk This Week was produced by the one, the only, Sarah Siplak. Our music is composed by Alex Stanton of Townspeople. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I am your host, Cindy Howes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend, uh, share it with them, and they can get it wherever you found this podcast or at basicfolk.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye.